0: Well, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Uh, is this microphone on right now? Or can you hear me all right? Good. Uh, my name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute, and we're very pleased today uh, to have you join us to talk about a new book that we've just released, A Struggle to Limit Government. Uh, we have two excellent speakers here. Unfortunately, our first speaker is going to have to leave very quickly, so we're going to uh, do just a very brief introduction um, of Congressman Jim Sensenbrenner. I think uh, everyone is probably familiar with, with Congressman Sensenbrenner having formerly chaired both the Science Committee and the Judiciary Committee here on Capitol Hill. Um, one thing you may not know about him is that uh, in in all his time in Congress, uh, going back to 1992, when the National Taxpayers Union began their uh, their Taxpayer Scorecard, which is a uh, a measure of uh, of how Congressmen do on taxes, spending, and debt, he scored an A every single time going back to 1992, which is pretty phenomenal. Uh, Uh, he's I believe the only one to have done that so you see so many members of Congress kind of lose their way philosophically as they spend more and more time here in Washington. Certainly that has not been the case for Congressman Sensenbrenner. I'm also extremely thrilled to be introducing him on a personal level because I uh, had the great privilege of working for him for about three years uh, and we still get along pretty well so that that says something (laughs) as well. Uh, With that I'll go ahead and let uh, Congressman Sensenbrenner make his remarks.
1: Well, Thank you you very much. Uh, you know. First of all, let me say that uh, I probably knew Ronald Reagan longer than anybody around here because when I was a 19-year-old undergraduate at Stanford University, uh, he was the chairman of a somewhat quixotic drive to unseat liberal Republican U.S. Senator Thomas Keekle of California and even though I came from Wisconsin they couldn't find anybody to be the Northern California Youth Chairman for his conservative opponent Lloyd Wright, uh, who happened to be uh, then actor Reagan's lawyer just during a lot of the uh, Screen Actors Guild fights to get the Communists out of the Screen Actors Guild. So Once a month I went uh, to Southern California Reagan was an actually active committee chair and Uh, shortly before the registration deadline, before the 1962 California primary. Um, I was there when Ronald Reagan changed his registration from Democrat to Republican. I had nothing to do with it, but I remember very vividly uh, his comment as he was signing his re-registration form, I have already been converted, so it is now time for me to join the church. Having said that uh, uh, I'm one of the few Republicans that has actually served uh, during the Reagan uh, administration in the Congress uh, as well as uh, subsequently up until this time and I'll make a couple of points uh, that I think are relevant to this uh, this discussion um, first of all you know while Reagan submitted budgets that did limit government one must remember that, Uh, The House of Representatives, which originates appropriations legislation, um, was run during that period of time by Speakers Tip O'Neill and Jim Wright, and uh, a lot of what came out of uh, the Congress was not as good as what uh, President Reagan would have wanted. Uh, the real revolution in limiting government was in 1981 and 1982 when we were in the midst of a recession and the Graham-Latta spending freeze bills were passed as well as the first tax cut. Uh, but there were two tax increases that uh, were passed, largely driven by Republican Senators Bob Dole and Bob Packwood uh, that ended up uh, having to be the price for tax rate reduction and tax simplification. Um, when the Republicans took over the Congress in 1994, Bill Clinton was the President of the United States. And Newt Gingrich tried to revolutionize government, and we had a government shutdown at the end of 1995 uh, because Clinton and the Republican Congress could not agree on a spending package. And politically, Bill Clinton won. Uh, He won on the substance and also what he did in the government shutdown uh, ended up re-electing him in 1996. Uh, What I can say is I think we did a better job on finances in 1997 and 1998, which was when John Kasich, who was the chairman of the Budget Committee, actually got past uh, balanced federal budgets and that was the only time since the Second World War where the federal government actually ran at at a surplus. So, you know, I would point out that limited government taxes and sensible spending, like a a balanced federal budget, um, uh, actually became the law of the land. Uh, I descended a lot from the uh, spending packages of uh, Bush 43 administration and was one of a handful of Republicans that regularly voted against appropriation bills. Um, I thought that the spending was too high at the time. I criticized the spending at the time. But if you look back at what happened uh, during the first six years of the Bush administration when the Republicans controlled the Congress, we were being criticized by the Democrats for running $200 billion a year deficits. And that criticism, I think, was justified. Uh, the last year of the Bush administration in '08, the recession already had started reducing federal government receipts um, and uh, the uh, deficit ballooned to $400 billion. And uh, Obama and the Democrats ran around saying, isn't that terrible? Well, the first two Obama budgets had a deficit of a trillion four hundred billion and a trillion six hundred billion, which is the one that we're considering at the present time. Uh, so I guess that the, the present uh, Congress is, uh, uh, has a very short institutional memory on how they got elected, which is one of the reasons why I think they're going to get defeated uh, in November. Uh, should the Republicans c- take control of the Congress, um, you can see uh, putting the brakes on spending. And you know, I think Republicans are doing a fairly good job in reclaiming the brand that we lost uh, during 2000 to 2006. But you have to remember that Obama will still be in the White House with a veto pen and uh, taking a hard line and causing a government shutdown on Uh, appropriations bills. Uh, We already tried that once and we got burned very badly with the re-election of the 42nd president of the United States and I don't think we can afford four more years of Barack Obama so we're going to have to dance the dance a little bit uh, uh, in pointing out that uh, if you really want to have limited government and particularly control over federal spending and federal budget deficits you got to give us the trifecta in 2012.
0: So having said that, it's all yours. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you very much. (laughs) Unfortunately, uh, Congressman needs to get to another engagement. Really, really appreciate your comments. uh, Next, we'll move on to to the author of the book, The Struggle to Limit Government, who's uh, Dr. John Samples. Uh, Dr. Samples directs Cato's Center for Representative Government, uh, at which he studies a number of issues, campaign finance regulation, delegation of legislative authority, and uh, the political culture of limited government. Um, He's written a a couple books. Uh, Another one that I'll mention briefly is The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform. Certainly uh, remains a hot topic here on Capitol Hill. Uh, Prior to joining Cato, he served served for eight years at the Georgetown University Press, where uh, he was the director of the Georgetown University Press. And uh, prior to that, as the vice president of the 20th Century Fund, uh, Dr. Samples earned his Ph.D. uh, in political science from Rutgers University. Uh, Dr. Samples.
2: Thank you very much, Brandon. I, I'm happy to say that uh, I don't have any disagreements with Congressman Sensenbrenner, uh, which is a good thing because he was here and lived through it, and I did not. I just read about it in books and occasionally talked to people. I think one of the things he mentioned bears uh, repetition because uh, it's one th- uh, an important factor in all of this that is often forgotten, which is, and I will generalize it, the American political system Uh, that's in the Constitution and the parts that have come down to us are not designed to bring about large changes in policy and in law. They are designed to make it difficult to bring about those changes and it was done so, so that you wouldn't have simple majority rule. Now, the result of that is that if you really want to limit government, and I believe that both Ronald Reagan and the Reagan administration, certainly David Stockman, And then again, the 1994, the new class of uh, House Republicans that year genuinely wanted to limit government. But in the context in which we live, that is in the post-New Deal era, after 1930 and onward, to bring about a genuine big reduction in government is a big change. So it's going to be a difficult thing to do. And the system, as uh, the congressman mentioned, at crucial points— was not unified, right? In 1980, you had President Reagan, and you had, as was said, uh, a house controlled by the Democrats, uh, skillful, experienced politicians like Tip O'Neill. And uh, in 1994, the people who wanted to limit government and were taking real risks to do so were in the House of Representatives. So you had Newt Gingrich trying to run the political agenda and bring about big changes from the house itself. So those two things were were very difficult, I think, and made it very difficult and are, are are looked over a lot uh when we think about this era. So that means I think as we look down the road one thing to keep in mind that is if the house does move in a direction toward more constraint on the government side, the spending side and the taxing side, then uh, there's also the people who come to power, if it is the House GOP or the Senate GOP, have to think uh, in bigger terms, which is 2010 will be the beginning of what is really a long and lasting, and going to have to be a long and lasting struggle to limit government. So you have to think about 2012 and afterwards. Uh, Now, let me look back uh, briefly and talk uh, both about Reagan and 1994. Uh, Reagan came into office in 1980. He did so at a time when the New Deal order had been around, that is, the New Deal and afterwards, the Great Society. And and you really had had, uh, at that time, 20, 30 years, uh, 30 years of Democratic dominance in the House. You had had an order that had entrenched itself in really important ways. It had been a long time since there had been anyone. And indeed, in the early 1970s, those of you who were uh, who were alive then might remember that it was generally thought that Barry Goldwater's defeat in 94 was the end of any kind of uh, hope for uh, restraint on the federal government. So Reagan came in at the end of that, but he also came in at a period when that whole uh, effort to manage the society, manage the economy, had come into uh, real Uh, into real question. I mean, the 1970s were a time where the government promised continuing prosperity, and you had economic uh, problems throughout the period, Uh, uh, real instability instead of prosperity. You had a society that was seemingly falling apart, and it seemed to to have fallen in decay in certain ways, exemplified best by perhaps uh, President Carter's speech toward the end of his a presidency in which he said that there was a national malaise and that we were the public wanted the wrong things and the country was seriously off track. Reagan used this crisis quite well. The other point I would mention about it this crisis was that taxes had been going out through, up through the 1970s primarily through inflation but they had been going up on everyone. Everyone was paying more taxes because government spending was growing. And Reagan responded to that and made, uh, as was mentioned by the congressman, in 1981 and early 1982. You got real cuts in both tax rates, but you also got cuts in government spending, serious ones, uh, in the order of 10 to 15 percent of actual spending. The problem was, in looking back, is that they did not persist. Reagan eliminated one program. One out of all the programs, it was a fairly big one, but still only one. Many were cut back, but even the ones that were cut back, the, the cuts didn't persist. By the end of the uh, two Reagan's two terms, my best example here is the Department of Education, which contains federal education spending, which Reagan had run against and had promised to get rid of, well, had spending 14% higher than it was in 1980 when he came to power. So it was not generally a period of great absolute cuts or reductions in spending. But what it was, actually, Reagan did succeed along with uh, some of his failures. The success can be defined this way. At the end of the day, by 1988, Reagan uh, and the Reagan administration, relative spending by the federal government had declined. That is, government spending as a proportion of national wealth, national GDP, had come down. In the 40 years prior to Reagan, it had, the trend was that uh, about every year just a little less than 1% of uh, GDP was transferred over into the government side of things. With Reagan, for the first time, that trend broke. And you really, for the next 20 years, have, relatively speaking, a plateauing. You go, for, instead of continuing forward, and if the trend from 1950 to 1988 continued, by the time uh, 2005 or so is the last time I looked at it, you would have expected that the gov- federal government would have had about 40% of GDP. In fact, it had about 30%, 31%. And in the 80s and 90s, what you saw was a plateauing off at about 20% or so of GDP by the federal government. So what Reagan actually accomplished was not a real reduction in the federal government on the budgetary side, but more than that, what he actually accomplished was a I would say, a reduction of the relative size of the government and a breaking of a trend, which if it had continued, would have had a much larger government share of the economy than it in fact did. Uh, The larger things that Reagan wanted, things like supermajority votes on taxes and balanced budget amendments, and even, uh, in my view, wrongly or incorrectly, the line item veto, Uh, None of these things were actually accomplished. The changes in the rules and budgetary rules, he was not able to get through. I I do see that, and I think it's one of Reagan's signal accomplishments because it shows a flexibility and a thoughtfulness about uh, politicians. And I do believe Reagan's great strength was that he was a natural politician and had extraordinarily good judgment to go with his uh, obvious uh, ability at rhetoric. His greatest achievement greatest achievement, certainly, of the second term was the Tax Reform Act of 86. And I think it was an achievement because Reagan understood that uh, the way Congress uses tax preferences or sometimes called loopholes, the way Congress uses them is as a way to control the economy, or they think of it that way, to manage the economy. It's a way of the government reaching out and managing the society, managing the economy through carrots rather than sticks. And so Reagan thought, I believe, that uh, if you got rid of those uh, preferences, those loopholes, that you would pull government back from the private sector, you would pull government back from society, and you would, in a sense, create greater freedom uh, and less government. Now, this required some imagination because, in fact, tax reform up until that time had been a democratic issue. They thought, not without reason, that a lot of these uh, preferences were really just going to powerful interest. So Reagan was able to put together and through his own force, and, it, and the tax reform of 86 would not have happened if Reagan hadn't been behind it and willing to expend some capital on it. He was able to get that through and it did lead, uh, it was tax neutral, it did lead to a shifting of taxes uh, rather than a reduction. But it did lead, to, I would argue, to a reduction of the size of government. And he was uh, willing to do that and willing to bring it about. Uh, Reagan had lots of uh, luck one way or the other. he It seems odd to think of bad luck like being shot as good luck, but that helped him get through. I, I, that really created uh, a public image that was very positive and helped him to get his program through. His bad luck was that he came to power uh, in a recession, and a, a deep and powerful one—at least one that started around September of 1981. And if you look at uh, Reagan signed his tax cuts and, and spending cuts in August of '81, almost immediately that recession started and lasted till early 1993. And his new federalism ideas, his de- devolution of power to the states, went nowhere because of that. So that was bad luck, I think. Um, he did as well as possible, given that he didn't have uh, you know, majorities in Congress, that he was able to attract Democratic votes, particularly on the House side. Uh, was this a great change? No, it wasn't. But it was, as I said, a breaking of, of a long trend uh, on the entitlement programs, which in many ways are the key as we learn more and more as time goes forward. Reagan did, in fact, try to cut Social Security spending. He tried twice. Uh, In 81 and again in 82, he did so against all political sense in a way. That is, it was a a difficult undertaking. And both times uh, he lost rather completely, ended up with the commission we know, the Greenspan Commission, that ended up raising taxes uh, over a a 20, 25-year period. Now, as my time runs out, I want to have some questions here. I'm going to jump to the other thing I would say about Reagan, just to finish up, is it it was politically – uh, what it was. And you remember back to 1980, George H.W. Uh, Bush had run second and was a representative of the more traditional wing of the Republican Party. Um, but in his choice of uh, Bush as his vice president, the legacy, I think, really hurt because uh, uh, George H.W. Bush, of course, was his successor as president. And you the tax rate reductions did persist until... Uh, until 1990, under his successor, 1994 uh, was, I think, also a genuine uh, concern. In a sense, the 1994 group was, as Reagan had as Reagan had wanted to be, uh, on the limited government side, and. Um, they faced the problem that they weren't, didn't have the presidency, and they had to do it from the House side. But they undertook us, going back and reading about what was discussed and what was proposed and, and what was, uh, uh, the 1994 crew wanted to do, it's amazing. I mean, they really wanted to undertake getting rid of entire departments and deep cuts in the federal government. And, of course, it was this that led uh, specifically cuts in the Medicare program over a five-year period that led to the government showdown. Uh, And it's ironic, I think, because, of course, the health care bill that just went through at least proposes to have uh, significant cuts in uh, Medicare spending as a way of paying for the program, cuts that aren't all that. They're a little less than what the on a year-to-year basis, what the 94 group proposed, but are are somewhat similar. Um, they lost, I think, in part because you have to remember that Republicans had not had power in the House for 40 years, and uh, they weren't used to also, I think, either governing or fighting out these battles in the spotlight. Bill Clinton responded very quickly uh, and responded strongly, you have to say. He knew, uh, learned quickly how to uh, win this battle, um... I would point out, though, that's not uh, actually noticed all that much was that even though they lost the show, government showdown, they were able to constrain government spending in some ways and get some of the things they wanted. And second, the 1996 elections uh, are, indicate pretty strongly that there were no or few electoral costs for the people uh, during that period who ran as part of the 94 group wanting to cover uh, to cut government. So it does uh, indicate both uh, with Reagan's general popularity and the 96 results that um, it's possible to do so as a winning political uh, strategy. Now, the book talks quite a bit uh, toward the end about uh, the two Bush administrations or the second Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration. In my view, the effort to limit government, I think I differ a little bit here with the congressman. Uh, really began to end in the summer of 1997. Republicans uh, in Congress and elsewhere began stopped believing that it was a winning political strategy to run on cutting back the federal government. And so they started looking for other alternatives, and through that period the number of um, evangelical and conser- other conservative Christians had been entering the uh, Republican Party and affiliating with the Republican Party in increasing numbers. So, I think one idea was that you can build a majority on uh, that group that led uh, i believe to the in part to the impeachment in nineteen ninety eight which, as you may recall, failed politically and then thereafter, george w. Bush, and this also is forgotten because there's so much history between us and nineteen ninety eight George W. Bush ran very explicitly as being the anti greengrich and to a lesser extent, the anti-Reagan. But certainly the anti-Reagan who was the government, he he liked, Bush always talked about Reagan's optimism and maybe sort of generalized concern with with freedom, but he was definitely trying to put some distance between himself and that period. So you end up with a Republican, initially uh, compassionate conservatism, which is sort of Uh, An appeal to uh, evangelical and other conservative Christians in some ways, but also uh, activist government. It's a reinterpretation of of that tradition, I think. So that's the initial uh, uh, agenda for the new Republican Party, and I think you've got a different kind of Republican Party really after 98. They're running on different uh, grounds. And then, of course, 9-11, and I put a great deal of uh, emphasis in this book, and um, it's based on public opinion work by a man named Gary Jacobson, who is uh, is really the tops in political science. The Iraq, it is difficult to underestimate the damage done by the Iraq war over time to both the Bush administration, I go into the whole social security effort uh, to partially pr- uh, privatize it, Uh, and the effects of the war on that, and just general. And the other point that Jacobson makes is the problems of the war and its unpopularity spread from George W. Bush to the Republican brand itself. It very nearly, by 2006 and then in 2008, very nearly destroyed the Republican Party. So, And I also point out that this was actually the the war itself, the effort of nation building and transforming uh, entire regions of the world was very much in the Woodrow Wilson kind of uh, frame of mind. It was a progressive notion and one that was out of keeping with the past of conservatism or libertarian roots of much of the Republican Party. And it was a political disaster. So we find ourselves now, I think, at a point where the future beckons uh, in many respects, and the Republican Party has run out one alternative to the limited government framework. That is, from 97 to 2006, something else was tried. A different kind of uh, republicanism was tried, and we see the results in 2006 and 2008. I, I believe the Tea Party movement offers not the certainty but the possibility of this kind of uh, foundation of republicanism in limited government ideas and concerns about uh individual liberty and about a proper constitutional order all of those things it offers a re- uh, a time to a uh, possibility of renewing uh that kind of effort uh and i think we may see that in the in the anti-incumbent mood here in the 2010 elections the question will be, I think, can the movement sustain itself and can, will the Republican Party respond to it in ways that, uh, not just in 2010, but in 2012 and beyond, in ways that present a real alternative and a kind of renewal, I think, of the Reagan and 1994 spirit. And uh, we'll see. But that possibility exists in a way that I was very doubtful about, say, at the end of 2008 or early 2009.